welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so normally we invite tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. However, today we have an employment law expert to help us navigate through the workplace law issues that have arisen from the COVID-19 pandemic, and in particular, the JobKeeper payment scheme. So we hope you enjoy this slightly different episode of Tax Yak. I'm Nicole Rowan, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. And today we're joined by Patrick Turner. Patrick is an employment and industrial senior associate working in Morris Blackburn's Brisbane office. Morris Morris Blackburn, one of my former employers, is listed by the highly respected Doyle's Guide to the Australian Legal Profession as one of two top tier law firms for employees in Queensland. In 2017, Patrick was the recipient of the National Lawyers Weekly 30 Under 30 Award for Workplace Relations, Employment and Safety. There are many people looking for guidance at the moment, and Patrick has been actively speaking about the employment law repercussions of COVID-19, including with the ABC and the project last week. Patrick, welcome to Taxiac. Well, thank you for that very warm introduction. It's great to have you here. We are, as um, the accounting profession is in desperate need at the moment for some understanding about the employment law issues that are associated with JobKeeper payment. It's, um, I'm sure you're seeing the same uh, across your profession as well. We certainly are. It's been uh, incredible to see the number of issues that have arisen in the wake of um, COVID-19. I think um, we're all concerned about the health impacts, but the economic impacts have been very significant too. Yeah, so obviously the government made a few um, announcements about the economic stimulus package. So the first one was on the 12th of March, and that included uh, changes or or, uh, proposals and initiatives like the cash flow boost and the instant asset write-off. Then we had some changes to that and a few more announcements on the 22nd of March. And it was at that point where the government said that certain businesses, as as a government directive, certain businesses had to close and or reduce their trading, for example, restaurants. And after that, we started to see a real rush on Centrelink. And it was about a week later on the 30th of March that the JobKeeper payment was announced. And that change things altogether because suddenly there was another option for financial support for people. So rather than going to Centrelink, there was an option for the employers to actually maintain that relationship with their employees during the period of the COVID-19 pandemic and the, uh, the, I guess, resultant impact on, as you say, on the economy. But it certainly, whilst it, it, um, it gave us an opportunity in terms of employers being able to support the employees rather than Um, them going off to Centrelink, it's certainly had some employment law implications that employers and employees are looking for some guidance on. But before we get, I guess, to the specific employment law implications of the JobKeeper payment, maybe could you take us through the key employment law implications that have arisen from COVID-19? So, for example, implications for stand-downs, staff being asked to take annual leave, long service leave, etc. Could you just um, take us through some of those 
in terms of what, what were the existing laws in the Fair Work Act and in other agreements and so forth? Certainly. Well, look, it's been something of a developing situation and we're seeing uh, new laws being passed and new packages and announcements being made every day um, by federal and state governments, which have implications for uh, workplaces, for employees and employers. Um, it, it's important to note that the significant body of workplace law that's developed over <laughs> over a very long period of time now. Um, so that's the common law, uh, uh, common law requirements in respect of uh, uh, how contracts of employment are to be interpreted and applied. Um, the Fair Work Act uh, at a federal level applying to private sector employees and also um, those uh, various state-based acts uh, which uh, apply to public sector and local government employees in a number of states, all continue to apply. What we have seen, though, in terms of changes is a number of temporary uh, measures uh, being passed, recognising the scale of the uh, crisis and the fallout of uh, a number of the measures that have been put in place by governments to, uh, to protect people from the pandemic. And those have had very significant implications for um, employees and, and also for employers. And there I'm talking about things like temporary changes to uh, industrial awards covering very large uh, sectors of the uh, Australian labour market. Uh, I'm also talking there about uh, the JobKeeper uh, changes, the new Part 64C, which has been uh, inserted into the Fair Work Act in order to... Uh, uh, help employers keep workers on during this difficult time. So between um, between the 22nd of March and the 30th of March, so the, the first announcements and then the JobKeeper announcement, we know that following the government directive, a number of employers um, stood down their employees or indeed uh, terminated their contracts. What... Um, what kind of uh, rules or processes do employees need to go through before they actually implement a, a stand down of employees? And what's their kind of relationship during that period that they are stood down? Certainly. Look, you're quite right. There was a spate of stand downs by a number of very um, high profile employers, but also um, small and medium sized businesses purportedly under Section 524 of the Fair Work Act, which is a existing provision of the Fair Work Act, which allows stand downs to occur in very limited circumstances. Now, those circumstances are where the employee can't be usefully employed um, because of, uh, among other things, industrial action, breakdown of machinery or equipment, or um, perhaps more pertinently to the current crisis, a stoppage of work for any cause for which the employer cannot reasonably held responsible. Now, one of the difficulties um, for employers in respect of those stand-down provisions is I think there's a real live issue about whether um, uh, some of the stand-downs that we've seen uh, fall within those quite prescriptive requirements of the Fair Work Act. A significant number of trade unions have quite rightly said that they're going to challenge um, a number of those stand-downs and stand-downs that are questionable. And I think some of the JobKeeper amendments are a reaction to the questionable legality of some of the measures that were taken in the early stages of the crisis by large employers to stand down without pay um, large numbers of employees. Um, I should say too that um, if employers are still seeking to rely on that provision, um, that it's important to note that awards and enterprise agreements can also prescribe um, additional requirements around when a stand down can be affected. And it's very important that they 
um, comply with those before, or well, certainly consider those before even um, you know, turning their minds to whether or not a stand down would be appropriate because any failure to comply with those requirements would be a breach of the Fair Work Act and leave them liable for legal action. So if those employers were actually looking for some advice or guidance on what requirements they need to comply with, what's the best source of guidance for them? Certainly. Look, um, I act for employees and trade unions exclusively, but there are many lawyers on the other side of the fence uh, who only represent employers. It's important to seek um, legal or professional HR advice um, before uh, implementing decisions like this. The reason being, if an employer doesn't do this properly, um, then they can anticipate that there will be claims against them. And I apologise for that. I've got a, a, a calendar reminder that pops up from time to time. Sure. Um, but they should be aware that there will be the risk um, if they stand down workers without pay, uh, purportedly under these provisions, that there could be underpayment claims being brought against them. There are very significant penalties that attach to contraventions of awards or enterprise agreements. Um, so the consequences can be huge um, for a decision that might be made in a, in a panicked moment or without proper forethought. The, the guidance I give to employers, um, uh, well, I shouldn't say that I give to employers, but the guidance I would give to employers is they really should be consulting um, with their workers and they should be consulting with any uh, trade unions um, that cover those workers. We've seen an, um, in, uh, we've seen an incredible, uh, I won't call it a collaboration, but a, a conciliatory approach um, uh, between the federal government and, and trade unions and the JobKeeper uh, laws are a product of that. Um, this is, uh, it's important through this crisis that um, employees engage with their workforces because um, employers that throw away that goodwill now um, will find themselves, in my view, struggling once the crisis passes. Um, so the, the advice is, one, um, speak to lawyers, get professional advice, uh, but uh, two, um, always, irrespective, ensure that you're consulting with workers and with unions uh, before you think about taking any of these steps. Good advice. Thanks for that. So that, um, that was an existing law that was in place. So that was the Section 524 of the Fair Work Act. Now, perhaps if we could look at the new Part 46C that was inserted in relation specifically to the JobKeeper payment. So um, maybe if you could just talk generally about what the changes to the Fair Work Act in relation to the JobKeeper payment have done. Certainly. So the changes to... Um uh, the, the new provisions in the, pair, in the Fair Work Act fall under this new Part 64C. Um, they can only be relied on by an employer where they qualify um, for the scheme and where they're eligible, where they um, become eligible or, or become entitled to um, payments in a relevant fortnight in which they intend to rely on the laws. Now, um, in terms of what they're able to do under these new provisions, the part... Uh, will allow employers to stand down um, employees in certain prescribed circumstances, uh, which are more tailored to the current crisis than the existing stand down provisions in the Fair Work Act. Um, stand down orders can include reducing someone's hours of work, can include um, uh, reducing those down to, uh, to zero. They'll also able to issue uh, what are called uh, JobKeeper uh, directions which uh, to change duties or 
to change a worker's location of work, again, in certain prescribed circumstances. Um, in addition to that, there is the capacity under these new part to enter into agreements with employees, changing their ordinary working days and times, or um, uh, taking annual leave at half pay. Um, it's important to note uh, these are, these are referred to as flexibility agreements. It's important to note in respect to the change to ordinary working days and times that um, under those agreements, you can't reduce um, the overall hours of work. So it's really only under one of these stand down directions under this part that you can do that. And finally, there is also uh, the capacity now for employers to request that employees take annual leave. And uh, these requests uh, cannot be um, unreasonably refused by employees. So that last one is a question that we're certainly getting a lot at Tax Banter. So um, there are, as you say, now capacity for employers to request that an employee take annual leave and a employer cannot reasonably refuse that. Have I got that right? So that is the essence of it. It's important to note you won't be able to do that unless you qualify for the JobKeeper scheme and an employee is entitled to JobKeeper payments for the employee in question. So it's not a new power for all employers to exercise. Um, the uh, additional requirement on these requests is that such a request can't have the result that an employee would have a balance of less than two weeks paid annual leave. So that will limit the number of employees who can be issued with a request uh, like this. It's really for people who have got large annual leave balances. Okay. So the employer needs to qualify for the JobKeeper scheme and qualify and be registered, I assume? So that's one of the, so qualify and be entitled and part of being entitled is putting your hand up and saying, okay. I want to participate right. in the scheme. Okay. That's right. So qualify and entitled and the employee needs to be one of the eligible employees who then is having the wage condition met in respect of the JobKeeper scheme. Correct. Right. And that wage condition is that 1500 per fortnight. That's right. Okay. So if that can be uh, requested um, and it cannot be unreasonably refused, what would be an unreasonable refusal or a reasonable refusal then? That's a very good question. <laughs> Sorry, um, have no, to ask it. <laughs> that's fine. Look, those terms aren't defined in the Act itself. Um, the new laws do provide um, the capacity for employees to uh, dispute um, uh, directions issued under these laws and um, uh, to bring disputes in respect of requests like this. So I think we will see a fair bit of litigation um, in the Fair Work Commission um, about uh, how those provisions are to be construed. Um, it's possible to think of hypothetical examples where um, a request might be um, unreasonable. Uh, where, uh, or sorry, a, a, um, a refusal um, would be unreasonable. I mean, the classic example would be where an employer is seriously affected by COVID-19, uh, where there is little uh, work that an employee can do and where the alternative is that um, uh, if an employee, uh, if the failure to take annual leave would result in, you know, issues relating to the solvency of the employer, you might find that an employer could persuade the commission that an employee was being unreasonable in um, uh, refusing the request. Really, it's a high bar for employees to surmount um, in order to refuse a request like this. It really is designed to mean that an employer can, subject to um, uh, the caveats of uh, not reducing their balance 
to less than two weeks um, and the request being plainly and on its face unreasonable. Okay. So just um, if I could put something to you, what if you had an employee that had a, a plan for, let's say they were getting married in six months, they'd been building up their annual leave, it had already been, um, you know, approved and so forth, that upon their marriage then they were going to go off on their honeymoon um, for that long period of time and now they're being asked to take that annual leave ahead of time, which will reduce their leave balance back to the, the two weeks and, and plus a, bit, a little bit more that might accrue up until that point. Would that be a reasonable... Uh, would it be reasonable for them to refuse that request to take annual leave? That's a really interesting question. And all of these issues will end up, uh, all of these scenarios will be fact dependent on the individual circumstances of the worker and of the employer. Um, where the alternative was that an employer um, would run the risk of becoming insolvent, for example, if this employee or a group of employees did not take annual leave, then they might be able to persuade the Fair Work Commission, the refusal like that would be unreasonable. Um, uh, it's, as I said, I think it's a high hurdle for employees mm. to surmount. I have a mm. tremendous amount of empathy for the um, employee in that situation, but um, assuming that the employer complies with the other requirements, um, it, it is a high bar for employees to get over to show that right. it would be reasonable right. to refuse the request. Okay. All right, so just a, another example. If, um, if you've got an employer who has stood down employees, but then they're looking to open on a reduced scale, subject to the government allowing that. And so when, it's, when I mean by reduced, it means that the employees are not going to be working uh, up to the, their normal wages. So if they were normally working, or, or, or hours, sorry, if they were normally working 30 hours a week, they might only be working 15 hours a week. Now, in that particular scenario, could they be taking, could they be working for their wage for those 15 hours and the other 15 hours be allocated to annual leave? Is that, is that something that is possible? That's an interesting question. Uh, it is, so, an employer can issue a stand down direction under these laws which would reduce their normal hours of work um, in certain circumstances and, and those do need to be met. The conditions for issuing a stand down direction um, are that uh, there be a um, employee must not be able to be usefully employed their normal days or hours during the stand down period. And that needs to be because of business changes that are attributable to COVID-19 or, or government initiatives to slow the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the implementation of the standard must be safe as well. And of course, there's the requirement that the employer qualify for and uh, become entitled to JobKeeper payments for the period. The employer could issue a stand down direction uh, if they met those requirements and subject also to meeting the notice and consultation requirements. And finally, the overarching requirement that the direction be reasonable in all the circumstances, um, they could issue a direction uh, that they reduce their hours of work. Um, conceivably, uh, uh, they could also request that the employee take annual leave. There would potentially be a live issue there about whether or not the employee could be usefully employed for a greater period of time um, than what the employer is uh, is 
using them for, particularly where they're picking and choosing which employees are directed to draw down on annual leave. So if you have employees performing the same job and you're saying to one, I want you doing 30 hours a week, but because this other employee has a higher annual leave accrual, I'm going to direct them to take um, annual leave uh, uh, to draw down on that. Um, then, Got a few noises uh, in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm receiving phone calls. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a busy time uh, for everyone. Um, but uh, the, uh, I think you would potentially run into an issue about whether or not such a direction was reasonable in all the circumstances. Mm. Okay. So obviously there's quite a long list of requirements that the employer needs to meet before they actually start to implement those kinds of um arrangements i guess so they've, they've got to go to the fair work act they've got to go to the changes they need to be of course qualify and be entitled to receive the job keeper payment they need to go through consultation etc so so an employer really needs to uh do a bit of spend i guess spend a bit of time do a bit of research and and be very clear and and i guess do it on a very step-by-step -step basis sounds like to, to actually then move to that point of making that request so just we've been talking about annual leave. What about long service leave? Is long service leave treated in the same way or is it treated differently? So that's, that's a great question. The, and it is one that I've seen cropping up a little bit. Um, it's important to note that the only uh, new addition to this Part 64C in respect of leave is really in respect of uh, request to take annual leave. There's no provision right. providing uh, that employers can request that employees take long service leave. What that means is that the existing law continues to prevail. So uh, long service leave is state specific. Um, right. yep. So uh, you'll have to look at your state-based industrial relations legislation and long, uh, and long service leave provisions to see whether or not that's permissible. It also may be that there's, um, if there's an enterprise agreement that applies to the workplace that it has um, it imposes additional requirements or contains additional terms around the use of long service leave. Similarly, there may um, be uh, uh, although I think it's unlikely there may be an award clause um, which imposes some additional requirements or provides some additional rights in respect of long service leave, which employers should consider. Okay. So that's a really good distinction. So the JobKeeper payment rules, I guess, or the, job, the changes to the Fair Work Act in relation to the JobKeeper payment rules only covered annual leave. And I expect that's because it was a federal piece of legislation, whereas as what you're saying is long service leave is governed by state laws. And so therefore, presumably the federal government doesn't have the power to actually uh, make changes to long service leave. So therefore, for all long service leave um, provisions you, or, or long service leave um, treatment, you need to actually go to the existing laws. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, now, what could we go to next? We have talked a little bit about the reducing hours, so you have talked about that. Um, what I might just go through is a scenario if that's okay, and perhaps you can give some feedback on this. So the question is really whether an employee's gross wage can be reduced down to exactly 1500 a fortnight with a commensurate decrease in hours worked so that their pay rate stays the same, which I know is a critical requirement in the um, amended amendments to the Fair Work Act. So for example, if you've got an employee that was working 80 hours a fortnight at a gross wage of 3000 a fortnight, 
and now due to COVID has agreed to work only 40 hours a fortnight for a gross wage of 1500. So they've had their hours and their salary halved. For example, is that okay? But what about if that was in the context where another employee only had to have a 10% reduction in their hours and therefore 10% reduction in their salary? So how does that work? Is, is that okay? Is that going to be problematic? So where, uh, as I've said, an employer can issue a stand-down direction um, under these new laws where they meet those, those basic uh, requirements. Now, um, such a direction must be reasonable in all the circumstances. So um, someone counterintuitively, if, if I can address the second question first and then turn sure. to the first one, yep. um, where you're distinguishing between the hours performed by one employee and another, you would need to have a pretty good rationale for cutting someone's hours and not uh, by a greater amount than someone else's. If they're performing the same role, if on paper they're doing the same duties, um, then uh, it, it would be difficult to um, think what might be the justification, a reasonable justification for cutting someone's hours uh, more than someone else's. Obviously, if the roles are different, they're performing different jobs, um, it may be that there's more work for one than there is for another. And it may be that you could demonstrate that that would be reasonable. So could I ask the question in terms of um, whether this is a reasonable justification? Um, the employer is going to receive the $1,500 per eligible employee where they met the wage condition. Um, of course, monthly in arrears from the ATO. So the employer is going to have all those wages covered, but only up to the 1500. And so what it enables is the employer to be able to afford the wages. And it also, I guess, ensures that those employees stay or don't need to go and seek support from Centrelink, which, you know, is part of that policy of, um, of JobKeeper is kind of the alternative to JobSeeker. So does that seem like a reasonable justification for the employer? Well, so in the instance where they were doing the same duties, working the same hours, then not necessarily, not in and of itself. However, if it was the case, for example, that one employee was working greater hours than the other one, um, it may be that that's a point of distinction um, that would be relevant to whether or not such a direction was reasonable. Um, the uh, Turning to the first question, um, whether or not you could... Uh, reduce someone's hours to meet the so it's 1500 so that you're getting reimbursed the full amount basically of their wages that's right yeah so you're quite right that their hourly rate needs to be maintained um, irrespective um, if there uh, it is possible to issue a stand down direction um, reducing someone's hours of work uh, you could conceivably reduce those hours down to a level um, so that the 1500 would cover it um, as previously it would need to be you need to meet the um, other conditions which the person which is a person can't be usefully employed for their normal hours of work um, you'd need to also meet uh, you need to ensure the direction was safe um, the uh, other thing to keep in mind is that it would need to be a reasonable direction and as i've said previously if there is more work for them to do um, but you simply don't want them to do it then you might be um, opening yourself to challenge on that kind of direction, but formally you can. The only uh, the only issue there is where, for example, someone's contract of employment 
uh, and this is a relatively rare circumstance, but doesn't tie the performance of work to hours of work. Um, there may be some contracts where people, um, counterintuitively as it may seem, get paid uh, notwithstanding the hours that they perform. Okay, as I said, that I think that's, like a, a, that's a rare contract. circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not a bad one. Not a bad yeah, one. Yeah, I might see if I can arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so just um, let's just say, and again, just coming back to that point, the employer really has quite a big checklist here, don't they, in terms of eligible for JobKeeper and, and um, the entitlement to it, um, go through the Fair Work Act requirements to um, and the amendments in terms of doing the consultation meeting and all the requirements there and so forth. But let's say that they, they put this in place, the employees agreed and so forth. Now, just the entitlements, during that period where they are on the reduced hours, can you confirm that the entitlement such as um, annual leave accrual, long service leave accrual, and particularly for, for um, aspects like redundancy and so forth, they continue to accrue at their normal hours, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So if, if there is a stand down direction issued for the period under these provisions, that period will count towards the employee's service. They continue to accrue leave, they continue to accrue redundancy pay and pay in lieu of notice um, as if uh, sorry, the redundancy pay and pay the notice should be calculated um, rather than accrue as if the employee had not been stood down. So uh, that's quite correct. Notwithstanding, you've got this uh, temporary, and they, these directions are intended to be temporary um, uh, directions in place. Uh, they won't affect an employee's service or accrual of leave or how you end up calculating their redundancy or notice pay. Okay, so another thing to add to the employer's checklist is ensure that the entitlements and the calculations still continue as if uh, they hadn't um, gone through that reduction or been stood down. That's right, that might be an easier one. So just don't touch the calculations whilst all the directions in place. Yeah, okay. Oh, very good. Okay, let's um let's turn to another one. This is a bit of a contract law one, but I'm sure you'll be on top of it. So one of the conditions for an individual to be eligible or to be an eligible employee of an entity for a fortnight is that they are employed by the entity on 1 March 2020. So we're going right back now, I guess, not so much to the Fair Work Act, but to the eligibility under the, the JobKeeper rules. So here's a scenario for you. Employment contracts were offered and accepted during February 2020. No salaries were paid during March 2020. Salaries are paid during April 2020, at least equal or exceeding 3,000 per employee. Question, is the offer and acceptance of an employment contract sufficed to satisfy the employment condition? That is, do they also need to have been in receipt of salary payments leading up to 1 March or is that offer and acceptance enough for them to be consi considered to be in the employment of the entity on 1 March 2020? Mm -hmm. Look, it, it will be somewhat subject to the terms of the contract uh, yep. that prevails. So it might be that you have a commencement date um, from the 1st of April, for example, that notwithstanding that there is an offer that's been agreed, that the parties have expressed that the employment is not to commence until um, a certain later date. And I think that would probably clarify the issue of whether or not someone's employed. Where you didn't have that commencement date though, you had a offer and you had acceptance, then um, it, arguably you'd have an employment relationship in place and an entitlement to um, JobKeeper, uh, well, the person would be an employee for the purposes of working out whether or not they're entitled to a job keeper. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, what other kinds of issues are you seeing come to you um, 
you know, across your your desk over the last couple of weeks? Certainly. So, look, a, a big one is people holding out that they're able to use these laws, that they're able to issue these stand-down directions or um, ask people to enter into flexibility agreements or request them to take annual leave, uh, but actually they're not. So um, they don't qualify for the scheme. Um, they haven't put their hand up for it, um, but they're still holding themselves out as if they're able to. Um, and uh, that's obviously of great concern. There are uh, provisions in these new laws which uh, create what's called the civil remedy provision, which means that if, if you breach that provision, fines can be sought um, by workers, by unions, by the Fair Work Ombudsman for the breach. Um, so that is a concerning trend that we're um, seeing develop. Uh, the other concerning trend, um, uh, which has been reported on widely, which is not directly related to JobKeeper, but, but certainly the prevailing circumstances, is a spate of very large employers uh, uh, seeking to uh, uh, dictate to employees that they're to take pay cuts um, uh, under various different guises. Um, I've seen reports of uh, the big four accounting firms asking um, uh, employees to take 20% uh, pay cuts um, uh, and suggesting that they uh, they will be taken to have accepted unless they expressly opt out. Um, uh, I am very dubious about the legality of uh, directions like that. It would appear to be a unilateral variation to the contract of employment. Um, I think there will be uh, potentially be consequences for employers um, who have uh, issued those top sort of um, uh, dictates to staff. Um, moreover, it, it raises the further prospect of issues that might arise down the track. So where you do have employees who put their hand up and said, no, look, I, I don't agree to this. I'm not willing to throw away uh, eight years of incremental increases to my salary, which I've worked hard for and negotiated for and bargained with with you in one fell swoop. Um, uh, that uh, those employees may then be targeted by employers uh, is what I'm concerned about. That they may be, they might not receive promotions. Um, they may be forced out in other ways. There are certainly legal remedies available to those employees. So while we're seeing a spate of inquiries now from workers around these issues, I also anticipate that there will be a long tail um, to these issues and um, a lot of emergent legal problems arising from some of the uh, steps that have been taken. Um, in uh, uh, as I think someone in, in a hurried and panicked uh, manner by some of these larger employers, but also by small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, I mean certainly, I think businesses of all sizes are just grappling with how to how to deal with this, um, and particularly it's it's just so difficult to do so when you just don't know what the future holds. You don't know how long we're in this for. I mean, you know, there is some talk about starting to slowly come out of it but there's also concern about that because if we you know if we then start to have an escalation of um of cases then we're all back into it again so it's a it is a really scary time and i i um, think both employers and employees are just really struggling um uh, or grappling with um what their rights are and and what they can and can't do i want to come back to the first point about the employer holding out that they're able to use these rules so mm. um, but they they actually don't qualify for the job keeper payment scheme so therefore they're not able to i just want to focus on that for a little bit mm. so as i said before the employers who might want to for example ask their employees to take 
annual leave or ask their employees to reduce their hours. They can only do so under the changes to the Fair Work Act where they are eligible for the JobKeeper scheme. Uh, and so eligible and entitled. They can, they can only rely on these new laws in that circumstance. Now, there might be uh, clauses in their enterprise agreements or their industrial awards um, that uh, give both parties, so workers and employers, additional rights or responsibilities um, in respect of those items. So um, uh, employers and workers should be looking closely at those other industrial instruments too, but you're quite right. Um, these new rights that are being given, um, uh, these new uh, uh, directions that can be exercised, uh, you can only access those where, you, where the employer qualifies and where they're entitled uh, to the JobKeeper payments. And part of that is that the employees um, are also eligible for those payments. Okay. So I think one of the challenges that our industry is having is actually determining eligibility. And we are now, I guess it's the 30th of April. The JobKeeper scheme was announced on the 30th of March. We're still waiting on some changes that the Treasurer is going to make to the rules, which will change eligibility for some entities, um, including service entities. So they are structures, um, basically employment structures that provide employee services to other entities within a group and also for charities as well. They're, they're waiting on confirmation of eligibility. So, so they've, they've had a month now where they've perhaps had a significant loss of income. They're struggling with their cash flow. They know that they need to be uh, negotiating and working things out with their employees, but actually they haven't been able to, de to determine eligibility because in fact the goalposts keep changing and the guidance keeps changing. And so that's a real struggle for the industry. So um, when you say that they need to be eligible and entitled, uh, I guess, for those employers, we've now gone a month, I guess, and some of them are still determining that and, and still cannot actually determine, an, determine that as at today, 30th of April, because they're still waiting for the Treasurer to confirm the amendments to the rules. Mm. What, what can we say to them, to those employers? Look, what I would be saying is um, I, I know this is new. I know this is... Uh, uh, this is a difficult time, and I know that there's a lot of new regulations and laws to get your heads around. It's important to remember that the purpose of this scheme is to try to keep as many uh, workers employed as possible to avoid another Great Depression and to protect, to provide some protection as well to employers through this very um, difficult period of time. Um, what I reflect on um, a lot is that uh, ultimately uh, businesses uh, that uh, businesses should really be thinking to the future and uh, their actions now will be um, taken into account by both their current staff but also by consumers. And the important thing to remember is, of course, that their workers um, are consumers themselves of their services, of their products, but also of other businesses. I've seen reports that there were something like 900,000 inquiries for JobKeeper and at this stage something like 500,000 of or 400,000 have gone through and, and put their hands up for payment. So there, there does appear to be a significant portion of the business community who um, uh, have not made a decision yet to participate or uh, may, may have already made a call that they don't want to. I'd really encourage them to uh, give that, uh, to, to consider that more deeply. Um, this, is a, um, this is a temporary crisis. It will 
pass, if the economy is to get back on to its feet afterwards, you will need people with money in their pocket, workers with money in their pocket, consuming services. If everyone opts out of this scheme, then the economic crisis is going to be deeper. Uh, it's going to have, uh, it's going to lead to more business closures. It's going to leave to lead to more businesses going under um, and it's going to lead to a, a great deal more people being out of work. Um, this, the JobKeeper scheme had bipartisan support um, and uh, the reason is because I think it, it's, it's good policy that, that there may be um, some confusion and some teething issues around who's eligible and who's not and uh, but I think the government is, um, uh, is attempting to address as those issues emerge, some of the gaps in the scheme. They're not doing it perfectly. There's a lot of aspects of it that I think are disappointing. It's a shame that not all casuals are covered by it. I think international students stranded here are in a very poor situation given that they're not covered by it as well. Um, but I think all employers should be very cautious before opting out. At the end of the day, you're getting wages covered, that there might be a short-term cash crunch, um, but once the payments come through, you're getting your wages covered um, and uh, it'll help you get back to work and get back to normal faster afterwards. Yeah, certainly. I, mean, I describe it as, as, as hibernation, that um, this, mm. this policy actually supports the hibernation of businesses, whether it's the complete hibernation because they have to shut down or whether it's just a partial hibernation. And that once we all emerge from this COVID-19 cave, the, the JobKeeper payment, which has maintained that relationship and that loyalty between the employer and the employee, will actually enable them to, to get back going and get their business up and running much more quickly than if they... Um, kind of severed that relationship That's and then right. have to go through a rehiring process. Mm. Of course, um, you did mention, you know, that cash is a bit of an issue. And I think that's one of the reasons why some employers have just gone, actually, we, we can't get the cash from the bank or the bank's taking so long. But just um, just a reminder, there are um, there are banking hotlines or there all the banks have put in place a JobKeeper hotline so that if you need to pursue or progress bridging finance to assist you to meet the JobKeeper wage condition, then you can go through those hotlines. And of course, the due date to meet the wage condition has been extended to the 8th of May. So that's the due date to meet the wage condition for the first two fortnights of the JobKeeper payment scheme. So that's the two fortnights in April. You've got up until the 8th of May to meet that wage condition. So it's another eight days. So if you have, haven't got the cash yet, but, it's, but the bank will finally get it through next week, you'll, you will still have time to meet that wage condition and be eligible for the JobKeeper payment for from the commencement, of course, assuming that you meet all the other eligibility requirements. So uh, that's an ATO has a, actually allowed that um, as a transitional rule, has allowed that extension of time to meet the wage condition, which is very, very important, very practical, as I said, considering that we still don't have the full details on eligibility. All right. Um, that's been very helpful. I, I find that's assisted me and I know that there's um, some clients that have certainly were waiting on that kind of um, clarification and guidance. And, and as you know, uh, you're in employment law. We're kind of in tax law. Our, our clients are generally accountants, trusted advisors of their, their employer clients and, and they, they are also specialised in tax law. But employment law, you know, as I said, tends to be outside of our realm and certainly um, outside of our ability to advise on. So your guidance, I think, has been really useful. Do you have any um, additional remarks that you want to make um, yeah. for purposes of our profession? Look, thank you, Nicole. Um, I'm a big fan of the profession. I've got a number of clients who are accountants and a number of past clients who are accountants. Um, 
so it, it's a profession close to my heart. Um, in, in terms of further comments, the one thing I'd really encourage um, those who are listening to think about here is that um, a lot of workers are being asked to make tremendous sacrifices in this time and you may be among them. Your employer might be approaching you and asking you to take a very drastic pay cut or to reduce your hours of work or to make um, very drastic changes to the way in which um, your work has performed that previously um, uh, were not countenanced. It's important to remember that the decisions that are made now could have implications far beyond this immediate crisis. Um, there are employers asking people to take pay cuts uh, without any time limitation uh, on that. It could set you back, uh, as I said earlier, um, eight years worth of negotiations with your boss um, if you uh, agree to a pay cut now um, before without getting uh, legal advice. So. Um, while your clients, uh, while your listeners, I should say, um, will be providing a lot of advice to employers, they should also be thinking about uh, their own positions and seeking legal advice uh, if they're being asked to um, agree to something drastic like that. In terms of providing advice to their clients, your listeners providing advice to their clients, I think it's really important just to remember um, that uh, that. Uh, Yes, there is um, a economic crisis that is unfolding. Yes, there are difficult times ahead. Um, but those businesses that look after their staff and look after their workers, those businesses that have a collaborative relationship um, with trade unions and with employee representatives in their industries, uh, to my mind, the ones that are going to succeed, the ones that are going to come through this stronger and uh, better, those that make uh, callous decisions in a panic without thinking through the consequences or without complying with workplace laws are going to see repercussions in the short term. Uh, but beyond that, I think they're going to face serious, serious difficulties beyond that. Uh, so your listeners have a really important role. Um, though they're not employment uh, law advisors, um, they play an important role in helping their clients navigate these issues um, in a way that is compassionate, um, but also um, builds healthy businesses that can continue to employ workers um, and succeed into the future. Thank you. Um, very well said. Uh, I might just uh, remind our listeners too that in relation to those amendments that were made to the Fair Work Act for the JobKeeper payment purposes, those amendments are time limited and they will automatically be repealed by part two of Schedule 1 of the Fair Work Act on 28th September 2020. So beyond that, those um, all those amendments that are, allow that uh, reduction of hours, allow um, the employer to ask the employee to take annual leave, etc. beyond the 28th September 2020, those laws will um, all cease. And so all the existing laws and the existing workplace agreements, uh, requirements, etc. will um, come to the fore. So that's, um, that's worth keeping in mind. Okay, thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been terrific to get that, um, that insight and I know that's going to help a lot of our listeners. And thank you to you for listening to this episode of Taxiac. I've been chatting with Patrick Turner, an Employment and Industrial Senior Associate with Morris Blackburn. You can connect with Tax Banter on social media, including LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your thoughts on our Taxiac episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also contact the Taxiac team on email. So that's podcast at taxbanter.com.au. And you can find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. That's B-L-O-G.
If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review for the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile and reach of our show and to find our next inspiring guest. I'm Nicole Rowan. It's been great to host Taxi Act today and we look forward to you joining us next time. Bye.